Welcome to Spotlight, the Oxford Media Society podcast. My name is Alice Hazel, and my guest today is the broadcaster, comedian, best-selling author, and according to the Washington Post, rock star mythologist, Natalie Haynes. Her radio show, Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics, has had eight, soon to be nine seasons of broadcast on Radio 4. Her retelling of the Trojan War, A Thousand Ships, was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction, and her latest book, Divine Might, is out now. Natalie, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Um, so, as a student at Oxford, I think a lot of us, a lot of our listeners, will be really interested to hear in your career as you study classics at Cambridge. And one of the things I'm really interested to hear, especially if you had such an incredible career, is what was your plan when you left university? I didn't have a plan. I wasn't very, it always looks in retrospect like I had a really great plan. And in fact, I very rarely had a plan. Um, so, when I was an undergraduate, I started doing stand up for Footlights. Um, and I really wanted to be a stand up comic, although in the 90s it was a, a pretty brutal world to be in that's that's where I wanted to be um and so when I graduated um I was I went straight onto the circuit doing open spots so unpaid gigs at five minutes a time and honestly no one cared at all where I'd studied or what I'd studied I was on the circuit for I mean in some cases literally years before people found out that I had this sort of slightly shady past <laughs> as somebody who read Latin or Greek or whatever so um yeah, I didn't have very much of a strategy. I did stand-up because I really wanted to be a stand-up and I did it for about 10 years. Um, and then I just over 11 years, I guess. And then um, I made a kind of sideways move into writing for newspapers. I wrote op-ed, opinion editorial um, for The Times for a few years and then for The Independent because I wanted to do the same job but for less money. Um, and uh, And then I started writing books because I wrote a piece for The Times that just kind of... Uh, spun out of control a bit so uh, that turned into the ancient guide to modern life which I published in 2010 I think um, but I had always really wanted to write novels and I had tried to write one um, earlier than that so 28 I think or nine I was trying to sell a novel then but the financial crash had just happened and so it was just really really hard to get people to take a punt on an untried novelist especially one who'd come from stand-up but who'd written a relatively you know sad book um and my novels are generally quite sad some of them are funny but they're often also sad and so it was just a lot of kind of sideways maneuvers I felt I kind of would go as far as I felt I could go and then I would move sideways and then go as far as I felt I could go and then move sideways and so it looks like I've had this incredible grand plan to become a <laughs> successful stage performer before becoming a writer so that I could tour my books and that would be a really really good way of selling them and then the radio show it was honestly there's a huge amount of luck involved in everyone's careers I suppose um but uh, I wouldn't be a good Aristotelian if I didn't acknowledge the role that luck has played in mine, and it's a lot. Yeah, and when you went into stand-up, yes, think, you said already it was quite a brutal world. It was, yeah. Were there a lot of people that sort of discouraged you from that? I think especially mm. when you go to one of these, like, yeah, you know, of course, a group in university who you know expect you to go into like a grad scheme. I know, like, I was supposed to be a lawyer. lawyer. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think my parents both found it really difficult, partly because I think they had assumed I would get, for want of a better phrase, a proper job, and partly because it is very painful to watch somebody do something that they're not good at yet, and you can't be a good stand-up comic until you've done it for a while. It's just hard, you know, and it's not like playing an instrument where you could have played successfully in the comfort of your own home but never been on stage in front of people but you can still play right you learn to read music you learn to write your songs you learn to sing you can sing in tune and all those with stand-up 
the only place you can do it is in front of an audience. Otherwise, you're just talking to yourself and you, you just don't know if this material will work in front of people. And even really brilliant stand-ups, people that I saw at the very start of their careers who were just naturally incredibly funny, um, like Daniel Kitson or Peter Kay or whoever, they just had funny bones, as comedians would say. You know, even them, it took a few gigs to get that sense of, you know, yeah, this is how I time, this is how I belong here. For me, it took, you know, a year or more, two years probably. Um, and it, it was a, it must have been really painful to watch. I'm not sure if I could do what they did then, which was to sort of say, yeah, you're doing really well, it's all going to be fine. Because <laughs> that certainly wasn't guaranteed at that time, but, you know. And during that period, did you have quite a lot of self-doubt? Was yes, there, of course. Yeah, were there periods yeah. where you sort of thought maybe this isn't for me what sort of was it that kept you going was it just the love for it I think I have like two sets of train tracks in my head at any given time the one where everything is going really well and the one where everything is going really badly and I basically oscillate between them at all times um and so I always both think I have to prepare constantly for disaster and that everything will work out Mm. and it's really hard to um explain it better than that I think generally um you, you can't win if you don't play. Um, and I didn't ever feel really that I'd won at comedy. I felt like I got out just before it ate me alive. But um, I think it would have been tempting in some ways to step away from it, but I'm really glad I didn't. You know, I went to the Fringe in 2002 and got terrible reviews at the start of the run. And then at the end of the run, I got nominated for the Perrier Newcomer Award. I was the first woman I think they'd ever nominated for a solo show. And it was like, everyone at home thought it had gone brilliantly. But to me, I felt like I'd had a limp for three and a half weeks because I felt so injured by everything that happened at the beginning. And I was only just starting to get back to sort of level. So yeah, I don't, it's, it's a bit hard to sort of, yeah, I doubted it all the time. I never stopped doubting it. And also I never stopped believing it was what I wanted to do. And until like year 10 it was the only thing I wanted to do and then in year 10 I kind of thought I'm actually tired you know I bought a flat I didn't want to spend the rest of my life driving a thousand miles a week it sounds fun but it's not as glamorous as it as it sort of sounds it's you know for a while it felt like being you know like a long distance driver or something so it, yeah I was I was I now I travel more and do more gigs in a year than I did in the last few years of my stand-up career so it hasn't gone that well quitting <laughs> but anyway I did try um when you took that kind of Sidestep. I mean, as you mentioned, you're tired of stand-up, which is actually totally understandable. It's a pretty brutal world. Um, when you took that sidestep into journalism and writing, how did, did the comedy skills transfer quite easily across, or was it actually yeah, quite reasonably quickly? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is that stand-up comics write their own material, so it's not like being a comic actor. Um, some of whom also, you know, obviously do sketch performing and write their own stuff, but lots of whom are having to perform other people's material. So I was already quite a a robust editor of my own work because if you're not as a stand-up the audience will really tell you you know nobody picks their words more carefully than stand-ups except for maybe poets and advertisers because they pay by the word and that's it you know you always because even a syllable will change where the laugh falls yeah and you don't want that to happen you know so it's a it's a it's a really transferable skill in fact and obviously the kind of confidence that you get from performing it pays off in spades you know I'm really lucky that I get to reuse it for the radio series and then the live tours but yeah it's hard to imagine that I could have had my career without doing stand-up so I'm really glad I stuck with it but uh, looking back I don't know how I don't know what I was thinking I was so <laughs> so brave I think oh god I was such a child when I went out on the circuit I was like 22 and it's like gosh anyway um and your step sort of back into classics so that's what we were really over at the moment anyway, yeah your classics. it's true 
how did that come about? I sort of always going back to your roots. Yeah, I always tell people I ran away and joined the circus and then (laughs) I ran away from that and joined the library and that's pretty well true. Um, I think I'd never really wanted to step away from classics, but there was absolutely no way doing the stand-up circuit in the 90s that there was any place for it. You know, it was a... It wasn't a sort of, you know, easy breezy set of um, undergraduates listening to you like it was at college. It was working men's clubs. It was nightclubs that did a comedy night. It was occasionally strip joints that did a comedy night. I mean, it was a rough time. And so, yeah, there wasn't much scope to be talking about classics in that environment, (laughs) any of those environments. Um, And so it didn't really kind of become a thing until really late on. And then when I wrote Ancient Guide... I'd, once I'd, I kind of quit stand-up in 2007, um, I'd done one last tour of my sort of, you know, laughably greatest hits. Um, and Marcus Brigstock said, oh, you'll never last off the circuit, you'll be back, you know. Once you check in, you can't check out. And I was like, yeah, I'm gone. He said, you'll be back in two years. And he was right, of course, you know, within two years I'd written um, Ancient Guide and it was already starting to look like you know this would be a good way to sell it because book festivals you know they're a huge thing now they were a big thing then in the UK especially Um, and if you can perform your own material about your own book firstly you stand a decent chance of getting the audience to be interested in the book but secondly you're saving the book festival the money of somebody to interview you and so it immediately becomes a more desirable commodity for them and a lot of these things are run on a really small budget so they can't afford you know they'll put you on a panel and you'll get like 15 minutes of an hour to talk about your book but if you can do a solo thing then that's a that's a risk that lots of festivals were prepared to take and then you know you can build an audience across years and books and so when I have a book out now Divine Mike came out at the time of recording it came out a month ago uh not even a month jeez been on tour for about a thousand years and I was like um and I'd done I don't know I've probably done 30 shows of it already so yeah that's not an unusual state of affairs yeah it's quite unusual for an author though yeah it's true yeah it is a it's a lot I mean there's more of a move I think to put um authors into theatres rather than just book festivals or bookshop talks or whatever um and I probably have had some influence on that because you know it's a good way of getting your book your message um I suppose out there but also I love performing I missed it so badly when we couldn't um I missed it like a limb had been amputated it was awful and although I find the you know the travel is is hard work um and it's still hard work but I I missed audiences like a family member so yeah I'm really glad I, I can be out performing again yeah, were you surprised that Classics was, like, responded to yeah. so quickly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, since you asked, yeah, I was quite, yeah. No, it didn't ever seem, I mean, I didn't do it on the circuit for all that time because I thought, you know, this is just going to be really, like, othering. Uh, you know, I already have to, uh, I already have to kind of sell myself. You know, women were, like, 10% of stand-up when I was yeah. doing it, when I started and when I left. You know, it didn't improve at all in the time I was there. We never saw each other unless it was International Women's Day and then there were two women on the bill. Um, but, yeah, it, it never occurred to me there would be an audience. And I, I, I think probably looking back, it was right, the, that audience wasn't um, going to necessarily be expecting classics in that environment. But I'm constantly delighted by the especially the generational combinations that I get at the shows now where you get kind of parents bringing their kids and kids bringing their grandparents. And so I get a sort of, you know, sometimes three generations of a family 
um, all coming along and it is so heartwarming. It's just really, really lovely. And I'm astonished that, you know, the, the reach of Radio 4 is so immense that every episode on broadcast of Stand Up For The Classics gets about 1.6 million listeners. But the downloads are huge, um, millions and millions now. Um, And so it has a reach far beyond, as a podcast, far beyond what I ever could have anticipated it it would have. And the nice thing is that I'd made it all along um, as though it would be like one big listening project just because it was kind of pleasing to me to do that. So we started the series in 2014, I think. Um, And... Although we're still learning how to make it in the first series, you know, we haven't we haven't got the the budget yet to get the guests into the studio, so we're doing the stand up all in one block, and then I go out and talk to people, and then after that we could do it across two shows and uh, and have guests in there. So um, it changed the the listeners' experience a bit, but all that time ago, I kind of thought it would be great if people listened to this; that would be really lovely. Um, but I didn't have very high expectations, and as time has gone on, the, the sort of passion with which people listen to it as a sort of whole thing, you know, the number of people who still come now, a few years on, um, and tell me at signings after events that they that it got them through lockdown listening to it on kind of a loop. And I tell them the truth, which is that my own mum listened to it on lockdown. She was like, sometimes I just miss you. And I'm like, oh. mum, you can just ring. <laughs> I'm right here. She's like, well, I don't want to be annoying. You're not being annoying. You're my literal mother. But I do love that people found it a sort of consolation, I suppose. And perhaps that's part of the appeal of classics, that there's something that, you know, it both reflects back the world, especially myth, reflects back the world that we're in. But also it does give us a sort of different slant it is escapist at some level so uh, yeah I wonder if that's part of it too yeah I think it is I can actually hand to a heart say I think I've listened to every episode about three times thank you and um, it was in my personal statement for Oxford so good go. good to hear well the new um, series starts on the I should know this really 18th 19th of November so oh, it is coming and there will be a series 10 next year it's oh, already amazing. commissioned so and how did that opportunity come, come about on Radio 4? Uh, the way all my opportunities come about, I bang my head against a brick wall until eventually the wall gives in and the whole time I pretend it doesn't hurt, is <laughs> wow. the honest answer. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I pestered them for years to um, get them to agree to it and then they, they were a bit uncertain and then they agreed to it and then we made a series and it wasn't bad and they let us do another one and it was better. And then we made series three and um, I think we were pretty sure we were going to get canned. We'd been told we were likely to be cancelled. And we sent one episode from that series to the person who'd, um, who was going to be commissioning series four were it to happen. And luckily they loved it and commissioned it. And then, you know, because you always have to kind of find a way of selling yourself to the next set of commissioners and producers. So, you know, it's a, it's a constant... Yeah, everyone always is like, why don't you do more episodes? Why don't you do more series? Yeah, like it's up to me. <laughs> I swear to God, I do them whenever they ask me. I don't just sit there and go, oh, no, I'm having another violet cream. <laughs> so I'm too busy. Um, but yeah, no, I, I do. I, generally, I do whatever they ask for. And so, yeah, it's, it took a long time to persuade them. And it took ages to get them to make it available as a podcast. Um, just because things are slow sometimes and it's frustrating. But, uh, you know, generally it feels like you're being obstructed um, as you kind of pursue these things, but you're not really. Um, and so you just have to remember that nobody wants you not to have it as much as you want to have it. And then, you know, you approach it with the proper never say die spirit. And um, you have, as we mentioned, quite a broad career. You're mm. in broadcasting, writing, you've been in stand up. These are all like 
very competitive industry. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and how do you sort of balance all of that, like as sort of as a human being? Oh, really badly. Yeah, I never have time off. Yeah, I'm a, a truly appalling example. So don't be me is the advice I always give to young people when I speak to them. Um, I have, I don't know, I took two days holiday this summer. That's not an unusual quantity for me, except in terms of having any at all. Um, there is always something that needs doing. I'm always late on a book or, a, you know, a pitch or a thing or another thing. And yeah, I'm, it, yeah. The setup is very much, as a friend of mine calls it, planes to land. So when you're, when you're next, you'll have my undivided attention. But until then, there is absolutely no point emailing me. I will never read it. So, you know, you can feel injured if you want, but it's not personal. I literally never opened the mail. I didn't open anyone else's mail either. It's just when the next thing is you, then you'll be the thing that I look at. And until then, I, and certainly when I get towards the end of a book, particularly, and especially towards the end of a novel, um, I, I will just block all email out and, you know, turn the phone off and everything because the, the books, it's so hard to explain without sounding a bit, but um, the novels particularly, I find that the further in you get, the heavier they become, you know, it's like you're having to physically carry the world you've created around with you and you're like, oh, I've got to get to the finish line before it crushes me. And so certainly in the final weeks of writing Stone Blind, I was cancelling things left, right and centre. <laughs> I just, just got to stagger over the finish line and hurl it to the ground before I crashed. So... Yeah, you have to be ruthless, but I, I am really bad at having any kind of work-life balance, so I don't recommend it. Okay. <laughs> um, and that um, sort of brings me, you about, um, you've said about your books, um, and you switch quite a lot between fiction and non-fiction. I do. Um, is there sort of any method, like, methodology behind that? There is now, yeah. I wrote three novels on the trot. I wrote Amber, Jocasta and Ships in a row, and by the time I finished Ships which is quite a harrowing book to write in lots of ways, and in their own ways they all were. Um, I had essentially destroyed everything I cared about except my home and the book, and uh, I thought I can't do this again. And so I wrote Pandora's Jar, the non-fiction book, essentially as a, a means of recovering from having wrecked everything so utterly um, writing ships. And then I realised I really missed writing fiction. Anytime I'm not writing fiction, I really miss it but it's impossible to integrate with the live shows because on stage you have to be kind of you plus about 20% and in fiction you have to kind of remove yourself as much as you can so the characters have room to speak and it became really clear to me that there was nowhere in my life that I could just be except on the train to a gig or on the train home and it was just so wretched realising that that was true. Um, and so I, I decided I would alternate them and that's why I did Pandora after ships and then Stoneblind and then Divine Might and then the next one will be a novel and then it'll be non-fiction I have to break them up like that because essentially I screw myself up entirely writing the novel and then I cure myself writing the non-fiction <laughs> and then I go back in and do it all again um, and as we hear you're at the Oxford Playhouse today and you're about to go do a show on Divine mm. Might um, I just quite like to ask about your new book because it looks amazing. I'm I haven't read it yet. I'm very sorry. It Typical students, weeks, honestly. Um, I, <laughs> I would like to think you're probably busy reading other things. Um, for... I will. I will yeah. on Christmas. Um, but I'd love to hear about more about your new book. Well, it's a, a sort of sequel to Pandora's Jar, um, and uh, they rejected my original title. Nobody thought the last one would sell that well. Um, and so Divine Might um, is about goddesses in Greek myth. So Pandora was about women in Greek myth. Um, some of them kind of become goddesses, like Helen, but let's just move that to one side. Honestly, it just didn't occur to me it would sell. Um, 
And, uh, and so this time goddesses, so the big Olympian goddesses like Aphrodite and Hera and Artemis and Athene um, and some, you know, nice primordial vengeance goddesses like the Furies and some nice creative goddesses like the Muses. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to, to do a nonfiction kind of look at them, look at how the myths were told. Uh, particularly in our earliest sources for goddesses, so Homer, Hesiod, the Homeric hymns. Um, and it's nice for me that I can go back to the Greek um, in those instances and read them, you know, without the kind of filter of 19th, 20th, 21st century translations, which helps, I think, um, look at the, the myths in a slightly more kind of contextualised way. And then I try and look at how the stories have been adapted through time, what happens when the Romans get them, what happens when the Renaissance starts painting them, what happens when, you know, sci-fi gets hold of them in the you know 20th century, what happens when, um, you know, YA fiction gets hold of uh, tropes of, um, say, Artemis with her bow and arrows in the 21st century. So um, it was really just a chance to... The, the non-fiction books, like the radio shows, are, are really fun to do because basically I get to look up things I'm really interested in and then tell you about them. I'd have to imagine them from the inside. <laughs> where people are, you know, assaulted time without number. I do just get to go, this is really cool. Um, look at this. And so it's fun. That's really amazing. I love how you make it relevant to the modern world as well. I think it's really special. Thanks. Um, so my final question, because I must let you go. Um, do you have any sort of passing advice for anyone that who's about to leave university enter into like a creative industry? What would you be, what's your life advice? Well, I think you have to be certain what you want but that's not the same thing as you have to get it right first time you know there's a I think there's a huge pressure on you when you're young and there was on me but I don't feel like it was the same to the same degree um that you you can't afford to make a mistake you know that if you if you step out of line even once then you've kind of missed your chance to do things and that's actually not true um it's tempting to believe it the other great myth of creative um careers is that you have to commit to it utterly otherwise um, you're not trying hard enough and you'll fail. And that is, I think, one of the cruelest fibs that we tell young people because it's simply not the case that, you know, the actors... That narrative, the winner's narrative, I call it, where, you know, someone gives this interview to some um, journalist saying, this was my last audition before I gave it all up and, you know, and, and never went again. And I was up for this, you know, role that I didn't know anything about. And then, you know, I got cast as the lead. And, and it's like, mate, if you were getting auditioned for the lead, this wasn't your last audition. When you're getting auditioned for 19th spear carrier on the left, he's got one grunt. Then I'll believe you. But until then, don't lie. It's unhelpful. But also, it's just not true. You can't, there's this terrible trope of, you know, if you're really passionate about it, you won't allow anything. No, don't. Make sure you've got a plan B career that you don't hate because you might have to do it. And if your only option, other than, you know, being an actor where 90% of people are out of work at any given time, or being a journalist when the, the market has absolutely di disintegrated in journalism and the amount that it pays, um, or being a writer when most writers, I think the average wage for a writer is down to something like £6,000 a year, something ridiculous like that. Um, you know, that your plan B can't be, I hope I marry well. That's, you know, that's just not, you have to be able to look after yourself. So don't believe the people who tell you to go all in, otherwise you're not trying hard enough. If you have to write after getting home from work or, you know, before you go in in the morning or at weekends, then you'll be continuing a noble tradition of other people who've had to do the same thing. And, you know, the, the only option for an actor out of work or a comedian out of work or a writer out of work isn't, you know, a, a paid by the hour job 
which doesn't say there's anything wrong with that. My first job was in a bookshop and uh, I did it for years and it paid two pounds an hour. Um, but, uh, you know, you have to, in my view, you have to have a plan B that has some potential for progression because you might get to, and I know it seems impossibly old, but you might get to your 30s and decide you want, you know, a family or, you know, a home of your own, or all the things that seem unbelievably out of reach when you're kind of 20, 21. But you might want them nonetheless. And if your plan A career doesn't give that to you, I don't want you to just be stuck there. That seems like very good advice. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's been you a real are pleasure. welcome. This episode of Spotlight was hosted and directed by Alice Hazel. The theme tune was composed by Henry Nurse. To learn more about Oxford Media Society, visit our website, oxfordmediasociety.com, or follow us on social media at Oxford Media Sock.